Good morning, everyone. So good to be gathered together here this morning to worship the Lord. I want to ask you if you would please to open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 10 as we consider the identity and the purpose of the church that we have just sang about. Uh, Just a a quick uh, personal invitation to you if you are interested in coming to hear more about Redeemer Church, Lord willing, the upcoming church plant in September, if the Lord would allow us, that will be next week right after the service. It'll be about 20 minutes, so you won't miss your lunch and you won't miss the Super Bowl, I promise. Uh, That is also, I want to be clear, not, it's not a commitment to leave Faith Bible Church and come with us. It's just an opportunity to hear some more and would love your prayers and your support, even just uh, spiritually and emotionally and all of those things. So, uh, but for now, I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Please follow along with me as I read that passage. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him, who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who are you? Who are you? When's the last time you considered that important, crucial, fundamental question? Who are you? I would venture to say perhaps it hasn't been all that long ago given the the headlines and the way that the world is working today as identity politics come into play, as we wrestle with what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be married, what it means simply to exist, and as we wrestle with who gets to define what all of those things mean. It's an important question, isn't it? Who am I? Because it's a question of identity itself. 
And identity is crucial to living life because we need to know a few things. We need to know, first of all, why are we here? And what are we supposed to do? And where do we belong? Where do we fit? And all of those questions are tied to the most fundamental question of identity. Who are we? I think it's important for us as Christians, as the body of Christ, to continually root ourselves into the identity that God has given to us. Because the reality is, there are a lot of other voices and many other competing realities that try to define our identity, are there not? We take, of course, the the voices that we hear in the media, and we all know that those are deeply problematic. But you take the voices that you hear in the media, and over and over again, you're bombarded with things that you most likely don't believe, yet the truth is, as those things continue to hit you, sometimes they can begin to chip away at what you think if you're not careful. So we've got those external voices, but then let's take the voices inside of us. Not in a a weird way, but the things that we're tempted to find our identity in. How, How might we often define ourselves if someone asks you, what do you do? Who are you? What are our typical go-tos? Occupation? Ethnicity or family background? Whatever it is that you find your most significant worth in, most likely is what you identify with as your identity. And as Christians, we have to be careful because the temptation is that other things would creep in, both from the outside and from the inside, from the flesh that still wages war against us, and would cloud out the truth that our identity comes not from what we do, not from what people say about us, not from the way that people perceive us, but our identity comes from the One who made us, and for us who are in Christ, the One who has saved us. And so it's no wonder then that we navigate this life in the struggle of trying to figure out who we are as we press against the lies that come at us to try to define for us who we are. Well, friends, I want to tell you this morning that that's not actually anything new. Sure, different manifestations of that are new. Who would have ever thought even 20 years ago we would be having the conversations that we're having now? But the struggle itself, the struggle for identity, is really nothing new. And, And then the particular place that the Christian inhabits in the world is nothing new. And so I direct you to 1 Peter. Peter is writing to a group of people who have had their world turned upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is profoundly good. But as they follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, as they follow in His footsteps, Peter makes clear in chapter 2, 
They're discovering something that has fundamentally changed who they are. They're not who they used to be. They're now something different entirely. Their identity has been changed so much so that it seems that even their neighbors and probably even their own family members no longer recognize who they are. And as Peter makes it clear, they no longer are welcomed or liked in the world around them. And so Peter says to them things like in chapter 1, verse 1, they are elect exiles of the dispersion. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, that they, they, grieve by, they have been grieved by various trials. He says in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that they, are, they, they must keep their conduct among the Gentiles pure because they're sojourners and exiles who will be spoken against as evildoers. And he says later on in chapter 4, verse 12, that they should not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon them to test them as though something strange were happening to them. You see, Peter is writing as a concerned shepherd who wants these Christians that he is responsible for, it seems, who wants them to understand the new identity that God has given them because the world around them no longer accepts them as belonging there. They're pilgrims. They're passengers, they're sojourners, they're wanderers. They are everything that the people of God have always been ever since God has saved them. And yet, what is that experience like for them on the ground level? It shakes them. It has no doubt destroyed relationships that they have had in the past. It has, for many of them, ruined their social status so that in an honor and shame culture, they are no longer in the honor category, but now in the shame category. And for us in the West, that's really not a big deal. We're pretty good at at least saying we don't really care what people think about us, right? But you go to another part of the world and you get moved into the category of shame and you have killed any success that you would ever have in your community you're an outcast we may not know quite what this is like just yet but i think it's coming and so peter wants to arm these christians and i want to arm us today with some of the realities of who we are in Christ. Who is the church? Who do we belong to? What's going on? What is, what is God doing? And what is the purpose that He's now given to us in our new identity? And so in order to do this, Peter grounded them in two things. First of all, he grounds them in God's plan for His church in verses 4-8. to eight. And then he grounds them in God's purpose for His church in verses 9-10. to 10. Now you'll notice that Peter repeats himself. He seems to set up verses 4 and 5 as his main thesis, and then he circles back to it and fleshes it out that much more. So we'll, we'll take it that way. Verses 4 to 8 lay out for us God's plan for His church, and verses 9 to 10 continue to explain God's purpose for His church. 
It seems then that Peter wants to emphasize a sort of twofold plan that God has for his church. In verses 4 to 5, he begins to lay out this plan, and it's God's plan to build up those who come to Jesus. So if you're taking notes, let me, let me help you. Point number one, God's plan for his church, verses 4 to 8. Subpoint or letter A, to build up those who come to Jesus, verses 4 to 5. And if you're not taking notes, then you can check out there. Check back in now. So God is seeking to build up those who come to Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 4 how Peter addresses these Christians. He says, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Is that not loaded? But I want to point out to you, I want you to notice, first of all, how Peter describes these believers. He describes them as a, a temple and a priesthood, but before he does that, as he explains what God is doing with them, he describes what they are doing. He says, as you come to Him. As you come to Him. Notice the, the tense of that. As you come to Him. It's a, it's a present reality, isn't it? If I say or ask you to come here, I'm not asking you if you have came here in the past. I'm not asking you in five minutes if you'll come here. I'm asking you right here, right now to come here. And so Peter uses the presence tense to emphasize the action that they're doing. But if you know a little bit about Greek, then you understand that the present tense is also emphasizing an ongoing action. It is that they are coming to Jesus continually. And as they continually come to Jesus, something is happening to them. But I want to point out to you why it is that they are coming to Jesus. They certainly have come to Him in a past sense, but, but why is it that they continue to come to Jesus? Well, just look up one verse at verse 3. He's been explaining to them their, their need to desire the Word of God, the, the pure spiritual milk that grows them up into their salvation. And then he gives them this sentence, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Which is a reference to Psalm 34 as Peter's mind is flooded with Scripture all throughout this passage. Why is it that they continue to come to Jesus? Because they've tasted the goodness of the Lord. And Peter wants to emphasize for them the Lord that they read about in the Old Testament has now come in the person of Jesus Christ. That Lord that is that sovereign, that is that good, is Jesus Christ. And so they continue to come because they, like Peter said to Jesus, we have no place else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. And so friend, I want to ask you right out of the gate this morning. Are you coming to Jesus? Is your life 
marked by a constant and continual coming to Jesus? Because as Peter explains the Christian identity, as he explains the corporate nature of what the church is and does, he begins with the reality, not a command, but the truth that the Christian is marked by a constant coming to Jesus. Why? Because they know that Jesus is good. Because there's nowhere else to go. Because nothing compares with the goodness of Jesus Christ. And they not just have heard about it, though certainly they have, but, but what did Peter say as he hearkened us back to the Psalms? He said that it's not just that you know that the Lord is good, but you've tasted that He's good. You've tasted the goodness of the Lord. There's this experience there. It's not just an intellectual information. You can repeat all the proper theological categories about the goodness of the Lord. And if anyone asks you, you can point them to the right Scriptures. But if anyone asks you, you can sit there with a smile on your face and say, the Lord is so good. Let me tell you about how good my Jesus is. And so they're coming to Jesus because they know and they've tasted the goodness of the of the Lord. And then God, uh, Peter describes who Jesus Christ is in this statement. He calls Him a living stone. Not just a stone, but a living stone. Which is a little bit odd, isn't it? Have you ever seen a living stone? A stone that sprouts legs and walks away? I mean, it used to be, and maybe it still is a thing, that people had pet rocks. Right? Which was like the most genius marketing thing ever. Who invented that? pet rocks and I, I don't know what they would do with the pet rocks because I don't think rocks require any type of maintenance which is probably the point but the reality is even if you name that pet rock it's not living right it's dead it's just a rock now Peter picks up on this Old Testament theme of stone and rock imagery this prophetic imagery that that fits perfectly with the Messiah and he he equates Jesus with a stone but not just any ordinary stone with a living stone Peter loves to talk about that which is living You'll find it all through 1 Peter if you read this later. And do you know why Jesus or do you know why yeah, do you know why Jesus is a living stone and why Peter loves to call him a living stone? Not just because he is the giver and sustainer of life though he is, but because he was crucified upon a cross and he was dead and buried and 3 days later he rose from the grave so that now he gives life to all who believe in him. That's why that's why he does it. He says already back in uh, chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter loved to talk about his resurrected Savior. And so this living stone who went into the grave and got back up out of the grave is now the cornerstone of His church. But, but notice how notice the contrast that's here. He was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, He is chosen and precious. You know what that points to, right? It points to the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, but most especially it points to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus. 
It points to the reality that God gave to Israel and to her leaders the promised Messiah. The one who came to be hope Himself. The one who came to deliver them from their sins. The one who came to be their very life. The one who had been promised ages before. The fathers had spoken of this one, and yet when He came, He was rejected. Yet, although He was rejected by men, what matters most is not the opinion of man, but what matters most is God's prerogative. In the sight of God, Peter says, He is chosen and He is precious. He is the one whom God has sent. He is the one whom God has ordained would come. And He is the one who has the Father's love unending. Now Peter is doing something in 1 Peter as he explains this reality to the Christians. He's going to do it multiple times. He's he's attempting to draw a connection for the Christians that he's writing to to make sense of what's going on in their lives. Why have their lives been upended? Why did their family no longer want them? Why do their neighbors no longer talk to them? Why do people speak about them as though they're evildoers and all they're trying to do is do good? Peter wants them to understand that if they follow Jesus, then they follow in the rejection of Jesus as well. So he's making a direct connection for the way in which Jesus was treated so that those who follow Jesus can understand that Jesus blazed the trail that we now walk down. And so he's already told them that they too are chosen or elect back in verse 1 of chapter 1. There's some similarities here that he draws between us and Jesus. Note that Jesus is the living stone, but then verse 5 says, you yourselves like living stones, or as living stones. What is What is Peter speaking of? He's talking about the believer's union with Christ. He's talking about the connection, the relationship that the believer has with Jesus Christ. He says that if you come to the living stone, then you are changed now into a living stone yourself. And so this union with Jesus Christ has caused other stones to come alive and the result is that they are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus walked into Jerusalem on His final week of life, and He didn't just cleanse the temple, but He cursed the temple. And he promised that as the people looked on the beauty of the temple and they, they encouraged Jesus to look on the beauty of the temple, he promised them that not one stone in that temple would be unturned. And it seems that Peter is writing somewhere around 60 or early 60s AD. And if you're familiar with New Testament history, then you know in 70 AD there was a significant event that happened to the temple. Rome fulfilled that prophecy of Jesus. They destroyed it. And they left what stands today. 
Did God botch His plan for a temple? For a dwelling place with, with man? And a priesthood to worship Him? No. You see, He wants us to understand just like Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He was not talking about a physical place. He was talking about His body. So God uses this language then to help us understand that if you've been united to Jesus Christ, you're being built up as that new temple, the dwelling place of God, and you are offering as a priesthood spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ because that's the only way anything could ever get to God is through Jesus Christ. You know what the spiritual sacrifices are if you're familiar with Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is the spiritual sacrifices that Peter is talking about here? Well, it probably points us to verse 9, but the summation of the spiritual sacrifices that Peter is talking about here is everything you do unto God through Jesus Christ as one who has been united to Jesus Christ. And so Paul can say seemingly strange things like whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all unto the glory of God. How do you think about your spiritual sacrifices to God? I think we tend to think about them as things we do on Sundays. And sometimes Wednesday nights, if we can get our schedules linked up. Right? This, this is a spiritual sacrifice, right? I mean, you woke up on a Sunday morning. You got yourself dressed on a Sunday morning. You probably brushed your teeth on a Sunday morning. You've made a spiritual sacrifice to be here. And that's good, and that's right. But the Bible presents to us a more holistic plan of what it is to make a spiritual sacrifice. If you can eat and you can drink to the glory of God, then my friend, as a Christian, that means everything you do is a spiritual sacrifice unto God. Your occupation is an opportunity for worship. Your home life is an opportunity for worship. You see, there's not one area of life that is not touched when you come in contact with Jesus Christ, the living stone. Every bit of it is unto God. And so Peter wants them to understand that what God is doing now is inhabiting the people of God. Now notice, we probably think of this as something that's individual, right? We live in an individualistic culture. We are hyper-individualistic. We work hard. And we have a lot of things to be grateful for. But this does not speak of the individual, but rather the individuals gathered together who are being built up on Jesus Christ. We could just say it this simply 
If you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to the people of God. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, then you need to belong to the people of God. This is one of the many reasons that we value church membership. Because we understand we're not, we're not in it for like some, some like Costco discount or something like that or some like special privilege. We, we don't become members of a church because we're going to get in the front of the line when we get through the pearly gates. We become members of a church because we recognize that if I belong to Jesus, I belong to my brothers and sisters as well. I'm in a family. And I've got a family responsibility. I've been given a gift that I get to use to build up my family. And, and I need the other gifts of the family to build me up. We recognize that this is a community project. God is doing the building, but He expects that we contribute with the things that He's given to us. And so we recognize the corporate reality of this. Peter is laying out what I, what I think here is a twofold sort of purpose. The second one we see in verses 6-8 to eight is to honor those who believe in Jesus. To build up those who come to Jesus, first of all, and to honor those who believe in Jesus, verses 6-8. to eight. Peter then says, for it stands in Scripture. In order to make his point, Peter picks up his Bible. As an apostle, he had the authority to be able to simply say what he wanted to say, and that would have been good enough. As a writer of inspired Scripture, he could have just said what he said and understood that it comes to us with the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. But in order to validate himself, and in order to encourage us with the power of the Scripture and the place of the Scripture, he quotes Scripture. He says, for it stands in Scripture, and he quotes Isaiah 28 verse 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So, notice what Peter is doing. He's he's talking about the Christians, and he wants to set them in their right understanding of their identity, but he does so by showing them what God is doing presently. He's building them up, but then he wants to show them that this has always been the prophetic plan of God. It wasn't as though God tried something with Israel and it didn't work. So He pivoted and sent Jesus. And now we've got this new thing called the church. No, it was that the plan of God was always ever widening to include more and more and more so that now the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile. So that the world would be left scratching their heads going, how in the world do those people get along? And we could point to our crucified and resurrected Savior. So he quotes the Scriptures and he reminds us that this has always been the plan of God. God promised that He would be laying in Zion a stone, and not just a stone, but a cornerstone. Once again, He repeats that this cornerstone is chosen and precious. But then He adds this. How is it that the people are coming to Him? Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. What is it to come to Jesus? It is to believe in Jesus. 
And the picture there is beautiful and perfect, isn't it? What does a, a, a stone laid upon a cornerstone do? It rests its weight upon that cornerstone. What does the believer in Jesus Christ do? He or she rests his or her life upon that cornerstone. It's not just an acknowledgement that Jesus died and rose again, but it's arresting everything I am, staking my identity, finding my purpose in a crucified and resurrected Savior. Peter then explains to them, just as God promised, they would not be put to shame. Which, again, for us, kind of leaves us scratching our head. But for Peter, and for the precious saints that Peter was writing to, they were shamed by their culture. They didn't belong anymore. There are people here, I'm sure, who could tell us stories about that. Most especially the Clarks, I'm sure. But even as I'm thinking about different scenarios in our church body, I'm aware of some of you who have been rejected by your family because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. They've shamed you because you believe in Jesus. But Peter wants them to know, and God wants you to know, that the world may have shamed you but God will never put you to shame. You see, we need to make sure that the loudest voice in our ears are not the voices we hear around us, but the voice of God from His Word. It does not matter primarily what other people say about us. It matters what God says about us. And you have to remember that, don't you? Because when the proverbial rocks are thrown... It can hurt. It's a lie that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. They do hurt me. But as the words of of the world come and, and try to shame us, we need to hear the loud, authoritative, sovereign Word of God saying, it's okay. You will never be put to shame. You are mine. You are in My Son who is chosen and precious, which makes you chosen and precious. Peter begins to highlight this contrast then in verse 7. He says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. And then he quotes Psalm 118.22, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he quotes Isaiah 8.14, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he explains to the, the believing church why it is that those who don't believe stumble. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. So Peter highlights the contrast for them because they've got questions. Just like you've got questions, why won't they believe? How many times do I need to tell them about the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Don't they want their sins to be forgiven? Don't they want life? Don't they want joy? Don't they want purpose? Don't they want to understand the love of God in Christ and experience that love? Don't they want it? And so Peter shepherds them through that confusion. He says God honors those who believe, but those who don't believe, they stumble over the cornerstone that God has laid. 
I think it's interesting how Peter lays this contrast out. You would expect him to say, so the honor is for you who believe, and the shame is for you who don't believe. Now, it's implied, of course, isn't it? But he simply says they stumble over the cornerstone. And why is it that they stumble over the cornerstone? Because they disobey the Word. What Word is it that he's talking about? He's talking about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This same Word that was preached to them, chapter 1, verse 25. This same Word that caused new life in them upon their belief in it. You see, the Gospel is not just a message to be believed, it's a message to be obeyed as well. And so Peter gives two categories of response to Jesus Christ. He says you can, you can believe in Him or you can stumble over Him. But notice, he does not give a third category. He does not say, or you can be neutral toward Him. He does not say, you can wait a little bit until you get life figured out. See, my friend, you might be here this morning and you might be wrestling with Christianity. and, And I would say to you, man, I'm so glad you're here. I would encourage you in that wrestling I would love to help you. There are so many people around here that would love to help you work that out, wrestle that out. But I want you to know that there's one of two responses. You can believe in Him or you can stumble over Him. But you cannot ignore Him. I hope that you will taste and see the goodness of God. I hope that you will recognize that Jesus Christ has paid for the sins of His people and He's risen from the grave so that now if you would look to Him in saving faith, if you would call upon Him to save you, if you would allow Him to wrestle those questions through with you, if you would get with another Christian and open your Bibles and just read and ask your questions and just figure it out, then it just might be that you too would taste the goodness of the Lord and you would continue to come to Jesus Christ. You see, we we come to understand that Jesus Christ is the hinge upon which the door of your destiny swings. Believe in Him and you will receive the honor of God both now and on the last day. Do not believe in Him. And Peter doesn't quite spell it out, but we know that it's, it's judgment. But the good news is, you're still alive right now. You still have an opportunity to respond to Him. And so I would encourage you to turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus. To taste and see that He is good. That He is life. And so God is honoring those who believe in Jesus. I think think there's some profound applications here as we think about this purpose of God, rather the plan of God for His church. I, I want you to notice first of all, we'll go quick on these. I want you to notice first of all, just the sovereign authority of God here. The tenacious commitment of God to build His church. Nothing will stop Him. 
God doesn't encounter unbelief and go, oh man, I was just gaining some ground. No, He lays His cornerstone and your destiny is determined upon that cornerstone. We need to understand and be strengthened and comforted by the sovereign power of God to build His church. God is tenaciously and relentlessly committed to building His church. So we've seen then the plan of God for His church, and let's look at the secondly, the purpose of God for His church. God's purpose for His church in verses 9 and 10. Peter encourages them with what God is doing. Now he encourages them with who God has made them and what God has made them for. What is God's purpose for His church? In verses 9 and 10, His purpose is to create a people who worship Him. So notice the contrast that he begins with in verse 9 from those who stumble and disobey the Word just as God had destined them to do. He's not deterred by their disobedience. He actually has destined them for disobedience. But notice what Peter wants to highlight for him. He says, but, that's them, but you are something entirely different. He says, you are a chosen race. A people selected by God to no longer be in Adam, but to be in Christ. To be a new people that belong to Him. You're a royal priesthood. A people that now have access to God through the great high priest and the one and only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. We get access to God I think the reality that we are a royal priesthood, the church is a royal priesthood, points us to the reality that we will rule with Jesus Christ one day. If you're connected to the King, then then somehow God considers you to be a royal priesthood in the church. He says that they are a holy nation. A people that have been uniquely set apart for God Himself. Holy doesn't just mean the absence of sin. Holy means to be set apart for God's purposes. For God's use. And so this nation that is called the church of Jesus Christ is set apart for God and for God's purposes. And he continues to explain who they are. He says, you are a people for His own possession. A people that now belong to God and not to the world. And that's why the believers in Peter's day were struggling so bad. Because they once found their identity in the world. They once belonged to their families and to their communities. But now they have a new identity. They're God's people now. A people for God's own possession. And if they rejected the Messiah whom God had sent, then they will reject these people. But Peter wants them to know that the purpose of God is to create a people. And then he says that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What is the primary purpose of the church that Peter wants to emphasize? It's a, it's a ministry of proclamation. 
And what is it that we proclaim? The excellencies of God. And and in particular, what are those excellencies? Well, notice Peter highlights the Gospel. The work of God to bring you out of darkness into His marvelous light, into the light of His Son, and to build you up together as a brand new body. If you need a reason to praise God, all you have to do is look to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you will find infinite reasons to praise God. What Peter's doing here is explaining to the church what their purpose is, but notice it's corporate language. It's gathered together language. Certainly, we understand that the church scatters throughout the week to proclaim the excellencies of God as individuals who go home and go to work and go to the grocery store and the gas station. We understand that, right? But what Peter's pointing to is a corporate reality. What the church does together. Together we proclaim the excellences of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You see, Peter wants you and I to understand that what we're doing today has an evangelistic witness. We together need to be reminded about the excellencies of God, but we also need to proclaim to others who are gathered here among us who don't yet belong to God and to the world around us that God has so many excellencies about Him. And so he speaks to the corporate witness of the church. Why plant churches? Why plant churches in southwest Florida? I mean... What are there, like 75 churches on this block? We plant churches because the church is an outpost, a a beacon of God's light. Not just to shine light, but to proclaim His excellencies. To say to the world, God has made you and God has sent a Savior. Turn to God. And so he explains this purpose and then he reminds them of their condition. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Oh, you thought you were a people. But you weren't. But now, it's not just that you are a people, but you're a particular kind of people. You're God's people. You belong to God now. He says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once all that came your way was wrath and judgment. But in Jesus Christ, as you come to Him to be built up into God's house, to be God's priesthood, then what you receive is unending mercy. Mercy that that motivates you. Mercy that allows you. Mercy that lights the fire of your proclamation of His excellencies. Mercy that points to the goodness of God and the work of God. So Peter wants to shepherd these struggling Christians. He wants them to understand that who they are most fundamentally is not defined by them, but actually begins with God Himself. Doesn't the world need to hear that today? Not in a 
an unkind way, though that's easy to do. The world needs to understand that if you look inside of yourself for your identity, if you try to look inside yourself to find yourself, you'll only ever get lost. Instead, what you must do is look outside of yourself and look up to the One who has made you. Look up to the One who has offered His Son for you. Look up to the One who has sent His Son to die and to rise from the grave, to give your life purpose, to give your life identity, to make you, by faith, His very own possession. And so we, this morning, have been armed with these very same things. God's plan for His church and God's purpose for His church. May God give us the grace to go from this place understanding His plan and understanding His purpose all motivated by the mercy that He's shown to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your work that You have done in Jesus Christ to build Your church. We thank You that we don't deserve any of it and it's all mercy. We pray, O Lord, that You would take the seed of Your Word that's been sown and cause it to bear fruit in our hearts so that first of all, those of us who know You would love You greater and more deeply. And secondly, that those who do not know You, You would open their eyes. That they too would come to be a part of Your people. That they too would be Your possession. And that together as Your body, we would identify ourselves as belonging to You together so that we might proclaim Your excellencies. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.